morning. Uh, morning. Um, well, if you are not new, then you know that um, a few weeks ago we had a congregational meeting to kind of update people just where we are with our building and our space. If you've been coming for any number of weeks, you know that we have some space issues in the morning. Uh, we also have an evening service, um, but because of uh, a football game tonight, uh, some of our evening people have decided to come this morning and make our space issues even worse. So um, Jesus is thrilled that you're here. I am not. Uh, I'm kidding. Um, but uh, we, yes, uh, I will watch Super Bowl tonight, but we're going to worship Jesus uh, during kickoff. So uh, if you feel okay about that. Um, no, I'm kidding. But we are very glad that you're here. Uh, we do want to kind of say week in and week out, or at least several times over the course of a month or so, just say, hey, we, we know the space is real. We, we, it is not ideal to have people up in overflow or sitting in a hallway. And we, we really do, and by we, I mean like the elders and the staff and the pastors here, uh, we, we believe the Lord is asking us to care for the people that he's bringing us. Um, there's this little story um, in, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's the only story that appears in all four gospels of the feeding of the 5,000. It's only a miracle that appears in all four gospels. And um, there's this moment where the disciples are overwhelmed with the people. Like there's too many people here and they're hungry. Um, and Jesus says back to the disciples, you give them something to eat. And of course, he, he's gonna do something uh, miraculous to let the disciples actually feed the masses. Uh, but this task of like, hey, I'm entrusting you. I'm bringing them to you. You give them something to eat. Uh, that's what the elders and the pastors and the staff feel here is, Lord, you're bringing us these people. And he's saying, give them something to eat. Give them something to feed on. Um, and so if anyone has fish or loaves, uh, we would love it to multiply out uh, our, our abilities. But um, that we feel that we feel that kind of holy burden and holy privilege uh, to feed the people the Lord is bringing to us. So uh, we're working on some things, dreaming about some things, hoping in some things that would hopefully not just make some of the space issues less intense, but also be healthier for us uh, as a church body all around. So as, as those things unfold, we, we will um, certainly keep you up to date. Uh, that was the sermon before the sermon. Uh, now we're going to dive into uh, our text for the day. Last week we began a, a spring series on the book of Matthew. Um, Matthew is the most complete of any of the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's the only one that goes pre-birth narrative of Jesus to great commission of Jesus. So it is, it is the full life, uh, teaching, suffering, death, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. It, it's all here. Um, a lot of Jesus' teaching, uh, a lot of red letters in this book. So we're going to be looking at kind of the complete life and teaching and work of Jesus this spring. And we're looking at not just who Jesus was, but what kind of king was he? And what kind of kingdom did he come to bring? Because the king came with a kingdom and he came to establish his kingdom on earth that one day the kingdom of heaven might fully envelop the kingdom of earth. That's what we looked at in the book of Revelation. One day, like we just saying, all will be well. And the king and his kingdom, uh, God started at uh, the arrival of Jesus, the first advent of Jesus. So we're looking at this king and this kingdom through the book of Matthew. Daryl started the series for us last week by looking at the genealogy of Jesus, all of Jesus' bloodline, tying him back to Abraham and David, this promised seed that would come from the line and be the king that the world had been waiting on. He is the descendant of David. We saw that last week. We also saw that in his bloodline is all kinds of misfits and scoundrels and outcasts and sinners. And so essentially what the bloodline of Jesus and the genealogy shows us is he is fit to be king. He comes from a royal line and oh, also he came for people like us. 
You cannot be too weird or too broken or too messed up to be in the kingdom of God um, because his, his bloodline would show this is the kind of family he came uh, into and for. So that's what we're looking at is the, the, the background of the king, the resume of the king, the genealogy of the king. And now we get to the birth of the king. Uh, the birth of King Jesus, the Christmas story. We're, we're celebrating Christmas in February. Um, and hopefully as we read this story and dive into this story and look at this story through the lens of Joseph, which is how our text presents it to us, uh, Mary's husband, Joseph, uh, hopefully because we're not surrounded by Christmas lights and, and, the, and the nostalgia of a season, hopefully the Christmas story in February uh, lands afresh uh, for all of us um, who maybe have heard it before. So it's Matthew chapter one, starting in verse 18, eight short verses recapping uh, the birth of Jesus and kind of how his, his earthly father, Joseph, uh, experienced it. So Matthew chapter one, verse 18 says this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. This is now quoting Isaiah from the Old Testament. It says, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. It's the word of the Lord. Amen. So we have it here in our text, uh, kind of the backdrop for the theology of the virgin birth of Jesus. Even if you're not a Christian, you've probably heard that Christians believe in the virgin birth of Jesus. And it's not just kind of this anecdotal Christian trivia that we believe in a virgin miraculous birth, uh, the immaculate conception. It's actually Jesus being the product of a virgin birth is actually a needed part of our theology and of what Christians claim to have hope in. Because here's the, here's the picture. The virgin birth is what allows us to logically but supernaturally believe that Jesus was fully God and fully man. He was the God man. He was not the product of two humans sleeping together and producing a child. If that were the case, he would have been fully man, which he was. But he also was the product of the Holy Spirit conceiving in Mary's womb some mysterious and miraculous way. And so he has the nature of God as well. He is fully God and fully man. If all he had been was fully human and this fully human boy rose himself up and became God-like, then his death doesn't actually mean anything because his death is just the death of a really good man. But if he, is, if he is fully God and he is just this appearance of God that showed up on earth to, to live with us and to teach us, then he couldn't have actually suffered death for us in the human way. He couldn't have taken our nature. He couldn't have borne our sin. So he had to be both. And so this fully God, this fully man, son of God, son of Mary, the God man Jesus actually is buried in, hey, the virgin shall conceive from the Holy Spirit and give birth. It's a needed part of our theology. 
And I know that the virgin birth is this attacked thing in our theology that skeptics go, well, that's crazy that Christians believe that. How would you ever expect a modern person to believe in a miracle like this? And I'm not, I'm not going to argue you out of that this morning because a lot of it is crazy. Here's what I need you to know before you get off on that, on that exit ramp. Um, first century Jewish believers like Matthew who wrote us this book and all of his disciples, all of the first followers, first century Jewish readers would have had a much harder time believing in the God-man Jesus than we do. Like the idea that Yahweh could have become a man would have been impossible, impossible, un, like uncategorically impossible for them to believe. There's no way that Yahweh, our God, could become man. And yet, all of Jesus' first followers were Jewish people. They were like, this is impossible, more impossible for them to believe than we would believe, and they all believed it. And so you at least have to put down the idea that Ancient people were silly and they believed crazy things, but us educated, enlightened, modern people, we were too smart to believe in that. No, it would have been hard. It would have been a bigger hill for them to get over than it is for us. And yet they believed it. And so I'm inviting you into this mystery as we look at this virgin birth account of Jesus, as we experience what we're going to try to do is experience this story the way that it comes to us, the way that Joseph experienced this story, this crazy thought of the virgin birth. And where we pick up uh, the, the story is when Joseph and Mary are betrothed which is an ancient Near East way of basically saying engaged on steroids. It was like engagement, but they were legally bound to one another. They had signed things. There was, there was family agreement. Money had been exchanged like between the father of the groom and the father of the bride, like a dowry bride price had been paid for her. Betrothal was so serious and so legally binding that if you were going to call off a betrothal, you had to prove why with like testimonies in court and you actually had to go to court to get a certificate of divorce. You couldn't just call off the engagement and then throw a party with your friends. Like you had to actually go through a legal process. It was brutal to call off a betrothal. That's the stage that Mary and Joseph were at, legally bound in this quasi-arranged marriage, and this is what happens in betrothal. They got a text. No, I'm kidding. They, the, what happened in, the, well, he kind of did get a text. He gets, here's what Joseph finds out. Mary is pregnant. Okay, the moment she announces that to him or, or she begins to show, Mary's life is over. Because when she shares this with Joseph, this man she's betrothed to, he knows he didn't sleep with her. He knows he didn't impregnate her. And so how do you think, just go, go to this moment, you're legally bound to this person, you're on the way to marriage, you're on your way to like life together, our parents have chosen, money's been exchanged, the whole village is excited for us, and now Joseph finds out my wife-to-be is pregnant and I didn't sleep with her. How do you think he felt? And then, it's comical if you kind of play out how this interaction would have gone down, the reason she gives Joseph that she's pregnant is the Holy Spirit impregnated me. I'm sorry, the holy who? Like, we, like, like God's, God's spirit was a real thing in the Old Testament, but he wasn't indwelling in God's people yet. Like, in redemptive history, they didn't have an understanding of the Holy Spirit like we do. And so, Joseph is expected to believe from Mary that the spirit of God has impregnated his wife, which has happened to no one ever. And that's her explanation. Like, I'm just imagining in that scenario, like, you expect me to believe what now? What, what do you call your man on the side again? <laughs> like you call him the holy what? Like I, what you never called me that. Like I, like what, it, what, this, this is real for Joseph. And so if you play this out, like the way that this would normally go, Mary has now disqualified herself with this announcement of ever getting married again culturally, ever. 
And Joseph had every right legally, not just to have her severely punished, he also has every right to call for the bride price and the dowry back with interest and taxation. Like you've cost my family what we have spent, like life savings to make this happen. You can now pay that back with interest, which would have put her family out financially and culturally. Like the disgrace that she has now brought upon her family and the disgrace that she's now brought upon Joseph's family is almost incalculable for us. It's staggering. Culturally speaking, their lives are over. Like it, it, you don't recover from this. This, this, this. this was such, and I know that like when engagements get called off now, like there's a lot of pain, but there's like hopefully redemption stories. This, these stories do not end redemptively for people that called off betrothals. This was, this was not a good thing. So in the first few verses, we have this excruciating experience for Joseph. He's been betrayed. He's been confused. His family is gonna have opinions about what should happen to him and to Mary. And so Joseph has some decisions to make. He's experiencing all this and look at what he decides to do. Verse 19 basically says, Joseph, because he's noble and just, says, I'm going to divorce her quietly. He's gonna do the compassionate thing. That quietly word is huge. Here's what that's saying. I'm not gonna humiliate you further. I could. I'm not even gonna, in order for me to get the money back that my family just spent, I have to take you through the courts and get a certificate of divorce, which means I gotta call witnesses and your name's gonna be dragged through the mud and I'm not gonna do any of that to you. I'm not gonna drag you through the public sphere and put you to more shame. I'm gonna divorce you quietly. I'm not gonna further ruin your life, Mary, and I'm not gonna make you pay my family back. How do you think his dad felt about that? Oh, no, let me tell you what you are gonna go do. Let me tell you what you will do with, with this Mary who sleeps with Holy Spirits. Like, you are going to get our family money back. Joseph says, no, dad, in some way, and this is extra biblical, but in some way he's saying, I will bear and pay the cost that she owes. And I'm not gonna cause a fuss about it. Now, please hear this. Joseph was a noble and just man, we're told. It's not that he's unaffected by all this. And actually we see that in the text It's a little bit buried, but verse 20, throw this up there. Colton Hunter says this, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. When it says there that he considered these things, that's not like he considered where he might go to dinner tonight and he he thought about his options. That word is, is a really deep, complex Greek word that expresses a deep holding, like in the deepest place of something. It's like an intense focus, like his considering is affecting his bodily state. Like he is feeling every bit of this. Actually, the root word of that Greek word to consider is a, is a word that means rage and anger and fury. He's feeling it like in, a, in the deepest part of his soul. That word he considered that is used for him is used in the very next chapter in Matthew chapter two when Herod finds out that a king has been born from these wise men from the east and Herod's rage that he feels and commits mass genocide to kill all the babies off, that's the same word. Joseph felt baby killing rage at this, at this thought from Mary. Now, he chooses to do the noble and just thing. I'm not gonna punish her for it, but please don't imagine like Joseph in my little manger set, like calm Joseph. Now, he maybe gets there, but the first Joseph we meet is one who is full of confusion, full of questions, full of anger, full of rage, full of sadness. So knowing that's where Joseph is at, what he's feeling with the storyline as it's unfolded, I want you to rehear the angel's words to him in verse 20 when, when the angel comes to him to talk to Joseph in the dream. Verse 20, 
Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Here's what, here's what the angel guides Joseph into. Here's what he essentially just said. Hey, Joe, uh, I know your life has been blown up. I know you got questions. I know the answers are unsatisfactory. I know you're gonna have family you gotta face. I know that like culturally, you don't know which way is up right now. I know it's very confusing. You don't understand any of this. And I'm telling you in that, stay with Mary. Like, do you realize the chaos that this angel just signed Joseph up for? His life is not about to get easier because of what the angel just called him into. Joseph has just been called to stay with this woman who's pregnant out of wedlock, bear her public shame with her, and then face the family on both sides and go back and tell them, hey guys, we know that this is really hard for everybody. We're gonna stay together though. We're actually gonna make you guys have to bear some public shame with us, and the only explanation you're gonna be able to give to people is the Holy Spirit impregnated this woman. No one's gonna understand you, no one's gonna understand us, and we're going to do this. So if, if Joseph thought before the angel came to him, like my life's been blown up, my betrothed to be bride is now pregnant, and I didn't do it, what's, what's going on? If he thought his life was chaotic before the angel visited him, the angel just made his life worse. Telling him to stay made his life more chaotic. Like, what are you talking about, angel man? His, this angel's not named. Uh, it could have been Gabriel. He's usually the messenger angel. But this is, this is insanity, angel man. What are you talking about? This is a mess. My reputation, my relationships, the death of my dreams, like the laying down of what I thought my life was, what I thought I've earned, like I'm a noble and just man. Now you're signing me up for being remarkably misunderstood for like the rest of my life. Do you know the pain of being misunderstood? Where like, no matter how much you talk and try to explain, no one understands you. I feel it right now. No, I'm kidding. But like, that like, like, I'm trying to help you see from my point of view and you're not getting it. You're not seeing it. He, his life is gonna be that now. No one's gonna get it. He's signing up for loneliness, for isolation. None of his friends can sit around with him and go, yeah, man, our wives too, you know? Like, none of it. It's chaos for Joseph, what the angel just signed him up for. Internal and external chaos. And the angel knows it. The Lord knows it. And it's that chaos that the angel calls Joseph in to faithfully walk with Mary. Joseph, I know it's chaos. I want you to remain faithful in the chaos. Stay with it. Stay with Mary. Don't leave. How do you feel in chaos? Like what is, what is chaos? The swirling, the like, I can't see my way out of this. None of this makes sense. What does chaos do to you? Or maybe more specifically, what does chaos bring out of you? When you, when you can't make sense of the storylines, like, I want this relational healing here and, and I want it to be understood here and I have this aspiration and this dream and I can't connect the dots. I can't see around the corner to know if more pain's not coming. I can't find a way out of my pain. I can't numb myself through the pain. I can't soul dive on myself or with friends or with others to try to understand it enough to get out of it. We feel all this confusion, this fear and chaos is overwhelming because it feels like we're drowning. Here's why chaos makes us feel like we're drowning. This is, this is like the sinister side of the chaos that we find ourselves in. Chaos writes a story. 
Chaos loves to tell you not just how things are going, but how things are going to go. It's writing a storyline for your life and it's gonna convince you that the storyline is gonna keep being chaotic. You'll always be in this chaos. This will never make sense. This relationship will never get better. You're not gonna get healed. It's going, it's going to tell you all the things, your fear fantasies it's gonna fill in and then it's gonna tell you this. Oh, and by the way, you're in this chaos probably because of some decision that you made. Like this chaos is, is of your own making and so you kind of deserve this chaos. It's your fault. If you had been better, if you had chosen differently, you wouldn't be in this chaos. This chaos is going to continue. The war zone's gonna continue. There's gonna continue to be blood on the ground. There's gonna continue to be fog. You're not gonna know which way to go. Chaos writes a story for you and then it convinces you that it still has the pen. And it licks it and says, oh yeah, and more's coming. And so in the middle, in the middle of that place, when like Joseph, you, you can't see out of the chaos. All you know is that this is, this is hectic, this is tumultuous, this is painful. What do we normally want in that place? What do we normally ask of our friends, our community, or of the Lord to give us in that place when we're feeling all of that? We normally want relief and peace, which is understandable. And here's normally how we think that relief and peace is going to come. If I could just get some, some understanding from God on this as to like why he's doing that. And if he, would, if, if he would just give me a plan, if he would just show me how this is gonna go and when this chaos will end, I could stay, I could stay faithful in it. Like I, I could be okay if he would just help me understand what he's doing and why he's doing it. If he would just let me in and tell me and he would tell me how long this is gonna last, give me a timeline, give me a progress sheet, show me like when the chaos is gonna dissipate, then I... Just, just give me some, an understanding of what you're doing and why you're doing it. Give me a plan out of the chaos, Lord. And if you say I gotta wait, I'll wait as long as I know it's moving somewhere. And I hear this fairly often. I hear that line, because I say it. If I just knew what God was doing and why he was doing it, I would be able to get through this. We're intoxicated by this idea. Intoxicated by the idea that if I just knew what God was doing, I would be okay. If he would just explain it to me, Give me a plan, give me understanding, then I would be okay. That presumes two things. Let's say you could get the Almighty across from you at the coffee shop to, to ask the questions, right? Okay, Lord, finally, glad we got on the same calendar. I got some questions for you about the chaos that I'm in. Um, I need you to give me an understanding of what you're doing, the plan that you've got, kinda, kinda lay it out for me. Let's just say you could get that meeting, okay? And he begins to unfold the plan for you. That presumes two things, one, arrogantly, that if he unfolded his master divine plan of the cosmos, that you could follow along with it, that you could understand it. Like the, like the, the infinite one would explain his like cosmic sized, infinite knowledge, understanding of all things. And then if he laid it out for you, you would go, I'm totally checking with you. Like this makes total sense. Like you wouldn't get it. You wouldn't be able to understand it. Second thing it presumes, maybe a little bit more sinisterly is this. Let's, let's just give you a little bit of mental credit. You could follow along. You could understand all that he was doing and why, that he, why he was doing it. You could follow. That presumes that if he laid it out for you and gave you the plan, you would approve of it. <laughs> you would go, glad we get on the same page. I totally sign off on your plan for my life. Thank you for running it by me before you decided to enact it because this means a lot that we could you know, find some synergy. Like that's, it's, it's arrogant to assume you could understand it. It's also like naive to think that if he laid it out for you, you would approve. So go back to Joseph. 
in his chaos. I'm sure he would have loved some relief and peace when he woke up, like from the dream. Like, what is happening right now? Give me some relief and give me peace. I'm imagining if Joseph said a version of this, hey, angel man, um, before I wake up, would you just give me a plan of how all this is gonna unfold? Like, talk to me about, okay, so pregnant Mary, Holy Spirit's gonna do it. Okay, you want me to stay with her? Tell me how this is gonna go. Tell me what I'm signing up for. Like, if you keep reading the story, let's say Joseph did ask that. If the angel gave him that, here's what Joseph would have found out. Hey, Joe, uh, we're not even gonna cover the next nine months because uh, that's gonna be tumultuous, having to go back to your families and explain you're not calling this off. Let's get to Bethlehem. There's gonna be no room for you in the inn and the baby's gonna have to stay in the guest room of a house where animals lived. And then these weird wise men are gonna show up and bow down to this, this baby king and you're not gonna understand that either. Oh, and by the way, the gold that one of the wise men gives you is gonna be how you're gonna pay for life on the run because Herod is going to murder all the babies and you're gonna have to be a refugee in Egypt for like a decade where you know nobody. You're gonna have to raise this child in a country where you don't know anybody and you have no answers and you have no job and the way you're gonna pay for your life is this gold that this weird man from the east is gonna give you. And then you're gonna come back to Israel and the distance between you and your son is only gonna grow because he's gonna be doing his father's will, not your will, and you're gonna lose him at the temple and it's gonna be really confusing. In other words... What the angel would have let Joseph into is, hey, Joseph, if I tell you how this is gonna go, your chaos and your pain is only gonna get worse. Like, Joe, I know you're afraid and overwhelmed right now, but let me tell you, the next nine months of your chaos right now, of like having to get your family on board with all this and the, the public shame of this and not getting the money back and all that kind of stuff, the next nine months are gonna be a cakewalk for your life post-birth of this child. Like if the angel had told him how all that was gonna go, do you think he would have said yes? Because what, what we would love in those moments is like, just tell me what's gonna happen and usually how we hope that all works out is, and it's not gonna be that bad. Like I know you're afraid of it, but it's not gonna be that bad. That's not what Joseph is given. There's gonna be unanswerable questions, Joseph. There's gonna be rumors spread about you. There's gonna be shame hurled on you. It's gonna be a mess. And God doesn't give Joseph any idea how this storyline is going to play out over the next nine months or the next 30 years. God doesn't minimize the pain. He doesn't say, hey, I know you're afraid of going back to Aunt Sally because she's got opinions about the wedding, but it's not going to be that bad. He doesn't tell him that. He doesn't tell Joseph that the public shame won't be intense. He doesn't tell Joseph that, hey, don't worry, people are going to understand what you're going through. He doesn't tell them that his heart's not going to get ripped out. He doesn't tell him any of that. What Joseph needed was not more understanding of the plan. Joseph didn't need more knowledge. Joseph didn't need to know more details of how this was gonna roll out. He didn't need to read what to expect when you're expecting. It wouldn't have helped. Like he didn't need to know exactly how this was gonna go. The Lord actually, in the middle of Joseph's chaos, gives him something deeper than those things. I know that's what, I know that's what we want. Just tell me how this is gonna go. I don't know that that would always be helpful. So look at what the Lord does give Joseph. Look at what the Lord gives us. Instead of understanding the chaos, Joseph is given two names for this baby king that will help him understand the king. He doesn't even understand the plan. He doesn't understand who Jesus is. So look at the first name he's given. Verse 21. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus, Yeshua, 
which is Hebrew for Joshua. That's your savior's name is Josh, by the way. I hope you know that. You got saved by a Josh. For he will save their people from their sins. Here's what God just told Joseph. Your life is a wreck right now. And what you need to know, Joseph, is the reason why this baby's coming in the first place. That behind the scenes of this storyline that feels chaotic, I'm at work, Joseph. I'm doing something. And here's what I'm, Joseph, here's what I'm up to. Here's what I'm doing behind all of your chaos. That none of your chaos is going to feel like this is happening. But I'm telling you what I'm doing behind the scenes. I'm redeeming the world. I'm saving the world. I know this is gonna be hard for you, Joseph, but the baby in Mary's womb that was conceived by the Holy Spirit, you're gonna name him Jesus because he's gonna save his people from their sins because that's what I do behind the scenes of chaos. I always am moving to save the world. It doesn't make any sense. Joseph is not given in that promise that this is who Jesus is and what he came to do. He's not given like the connection of the dots of, oh, this baby's gonna be raised. He's gonna live a perfect sinless life. He's gonna establish his kingdom on earth. And then the Roman rule and the Jewish authorities are gonna crucify this man. And he's gonna be our atonement sacrifice. And he's gonna die outside the city. And then three days later, he's gonna raise from the dead. And it's all gonna be well because he has defeated death. He's given none of that. He's given none of the details of how Jesus is actually moving to save the world. But what God promises is, is behind the scenes, that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm about. That's the reason why this baby king has come to save the world. So that Joseph, so that you can know in the middle of your chaos, something bigger and something better is happening. And you won't be able to even see. You won't be able to go, oh, he's saving the world. And I can totally see how that makes sense. It's not going to make sense. Are we always told why God allows the chaos? No. Are we always given windows from heaven's perspective as to how all the chaos will find a resolution? No. Are we always told how to navigate the chaos with crystal clarity and wisdom? No. But what the angel just told Joseph is the same thing the Lord is telling you in your chaos that you can't handle and you can't navigate. I'm at work in your chaos and my work is always bent on saving my people. Always even if your circumstances don't feel it. And you may not be able to connect the roads of providence in your story to see how this is working. You may not be able to see how all the narratives will come together, but behind the scenes of your chaos is one who is above the chaos. And he can and will turn every sorrow into a joy. He's the kind of God that uses tears of grief and loss and confusion to water a garden of beauty and life. He's the God that almost without even being detected many times, like in the secret, is moving to save and heal the world. He's always working, always moving, always orchestrating a plan. That do you know on the worst day of your life, God is at work. He's at work in every divorce. He's at work in every cancer diagnosis. He's at work in every death, every failure, every blown up family gathering, every wayward child, every discord, every breakup, every change of plans, every awkward social interaction. Behind all of it, what's he at work doing? He's moving to save and heal the world. That's what he's telling Joseph with this first name. That's what he says to him. Joseph, I know. I know. I know your life is being blown up. And this won't make your life, me telling you this name of Jesus is not gonna make your life any less chaotic. 
But I'm telling you, here's what I'm trying to convince you of Joseph is that the chaos of your life is not writing the story of your life. I am. Chaos doesn't hold the pen, I do. And let me tell you what kind of story I'm writing now and I always write. It's a story where I always save my bride, always. So all the things that we want in our chaos, all the plan and the understanding, God, if you would just tell me why, I promise you, I assure you, this is better. This is actually more comforting. This is more liberating. This gives more peace. This gives more relief because now it doesn't matter what chaos comes at me. If this is true, then nothing can rewrite the story of God in the world. So the name Jesus gives us a window into a better story and a truer story than the one our chaos writes. Tells us from the macro perspective to see something bigger going on than the mess we're walking in. That's the first name. Second name that the angel gives this baby says, look at, look at verse 22 and 24. It says this. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. He's quoting Isaiah, verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And he translates it, which means God with us. Okay. Joseph has, again, go back. Get in his like imagination, get in his skin if you can. He has no clue how any of this will turn out. He has no idea, I, I borrowed this phrase from someone once, I, I use it with people now, when they're about to uh, have a baby for the first time, I say, you have no idea the helicopter blade you're about to walk into. Like it is, it is, it is gonna be, it's gonna tear you apart. But like, but I, he has no idea like the army of helicopter blades he's about to walk into. It's not just you know, being a firstborn dad. It's like, no, your whole life is being upended. It's all gonna be torn apart. He has no idea. He's gonna be so far in over his head and yet here's what he's promised with this name of Jesus. He's given the promise that this baby will be God with him. And if you've ever faced a valley or you've faced like a wilderness, you face the unknown and you like stare at the path before you and you go, I don't know my way through this. I don't wanna go. I don't, I don't know how to walk this road. I, it's too scary. It's too painful. I don't have any answers. I don't know how to be faithful in this place. If you've ever faced that before, if you've stood in front of that wasteland of fear and dread, you know the power of hearing someone come alongside of you and say, I'll go with you. You won't go it alone. This little beauty nugget is actually what I think makes Lord of the Rings so powerful. Frodo is given the task of destroying the one ring and it's his burden to carry, it's his burden to bear. But he doesn't have to do it alone. Samwise will be with him. And he will stay with Master Frodo, he will stay by Master Frodo's side, he, will st he stays with him that the darkness becomes a little less dark, the burden becomes a little less burdensome when we know we're not alone. And here's what the birth of the king, and here's what the birth of the name Emmanuel means. Here's the, here's the promise of this name. You will never be alone. You will never be alone. I don't care if the wilderness that you have to walk through is a wilderness of your own making, that you created this wilderness mess for you. You won't be alone. Because Emmanuel doesn't mean God with you when you have your act together. Emmanuel doesn't mean God will be with you as long as you do it right. 
Emmanuel doesn't mean I'll be with you only when you're a victim. Emmanuel is God with you, period, end of story. Emmanuel means you are never alone. Every tear you've cried in your room, every post-breakup, every death, every crowded room that you feel unseen and unknown in, Emmanuel means you are never alone. God is with you. God is with you when you feel it and when you don't feel it. Better, God's with you when you believe it and when you don't believe it. God is with you. He can't and won't leave you. Chaos loves to tell you in the story that you're all alone. And Emmanuel is the promise that that will never be true. The king is with you. Joseph is not given understanding. He is not given a plan. He is not given details. He is not given a timeline. He's told who the king is. Call him Jesus, your Emmanuel, for he will always be moving to save his people and he will always be with you. And that knowledge, not of the plan, of the king, the knowledge of the king, look at what power it gives Joseph. It transforms him. Verse 24, when this, is, this is like the most shocking sentence of the whole birth narrative. Maybe even more than the virgin birth itself. Verse 24, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife and he knew her not until the baby had been born, which means in his chaos, he was faithful. He becomes a faithful man in the unknown. He does it. He stays with Mary, which is insane if you know the context. Like that doesn't make any sense. But something about the names of this baby king gave Joseph what he needed to remain faithful in the chaos. He does the unthinkable. He stays with Mary, which means he's signing up to bear her shame He's signing up to bear her cost. He's signing up to be misunderstood. He's signing up for a life of unknown chaos. He stays. Joseph is a faithful man in the chaos because of who Joseph believed this king to be. So let me just say this. If knowing who the king is, what he's up to and what he's like, if knowing that isn't enough for you to remain faithful in your chaos, then maybe it may mean that your chaos has become your God. You're trusting in your chaos more than you're trusting in him. If knowledge of who this king is isn't enough for you to remain faithful, then maybe your chaos has become your God. Because the only way, the only way that Joseph could stay with Mary was was because the assurance, not the knowledge of the plan, was the assurance and that all was God, that God was doing behind the scenes and that in all of the unknowns, God was going to be with him. There was something beyond Joseph's chaos that kept him in it. He stays with Mary. Instead of making her pay the cost himself, he bears it. He doesn't pursue justice against her, which he could have easily have done. Instead, he experiences the pain of paying for it himself. Now, what Joseph didn't know, if he had lived another 33 years, he would have seen that the very beauty, the very staying beauty that he is living right here would be embodied by the son he was about to meet. That 33 years later over, his, over the course of his life and, and his teaching and his sacrifice and his being misunderstood, Jesus embodied this very thing. 
Jesus could have called for justice against his people, but instead bore the cost himself. Jesus, who knew the shame and the disgrace that his people were in, could have added to it, but instead decided to become disgraced himself. He bore the cost publicly for the ones he loved. In other words, Jesus is the better Joseph. Joseph is just a microcosm for what Jesus came to do. And just like Joseph with Mary, walking through the chaos with her, staying with her, Jesus stays with us too. This is what the king and the kingdom are like. Joseph is meant to be just a shadow of the real thing. Joseph is trying to, or the storyline of Joseph is just trying to help you see that this is what Jesus is like. This is what the king came to do. He's the God who stays. He's the God who's with us in our chaos, even when we don't feel like it. And we shall call his name Jesus, our Emmanuel. Let's pray together. Jesus I look into the room and I know, I know enough of the storylines of the faces that I see that there's so much chaos in the room. There's so much unknown in the room. There's so much fog. There's so much, we feel like we're drowning in it. And so instead of making us grasp for answers to the plan, would you make us collapse into being grasped by you? You hold us, you hold us close, you're with us and you're always moving to save your people. That's what you've been doing since the garden. And the arrival of this King Jesus is the confirmation of that. This, this baby king who declares for us that regardless of the chaos, this is what you're always doing. You came to redeem your bride. So Jesus, give us comfort, give us real peace not the peace that comes from knowing more about what might happen, but knowing you more. Help us to trust you. Help us to fall into you in our chaos, we pray, Jesus. Amen.